I'm so thankful for the, the men who have filled in uh, in the pulpit for the last few weeks, Daniel and Nick and Jason. And especially I'm thankful for them because this has been a, a topical sermon series, which is often more difficult to preach than expositional uh, sermons through books of the Bible, which is our main uh, diet of preaching and which will be. Uh, expositional preaching through books of the Bible where the text is setting our course for each sermon. But from time to time, it is helpful for us to consider particular topics. And so through this series, we've been considering some foundational truths of our faith. Uh, Scripture alone. Uh, Daniel Harmon preached uh, a few weeks ago. This means that the 66 books of the Old and New Testaments are our final authority for faith and life. No tradition or reason or experience can overrule what we find in Scripture. And, and although we find great value in the historic creeds and confessions of our faith, they are valuable insofar as they give voice to the overall teaching of Scripture. Two weeks ago, Nick Lingle preached on sola gratia, or grace alone. This means it is not by our merit, or performance that we receive God's favor, it is only by God's sheer grace alone that we receive His love. And then last week, Jason preached on sola fide, or faith alone. This means that faith alone is the means or instrument of receiving God's grace in Christ. In other words, the way you accept His free grace is by trusting in, by resting in Christ and Christ alone. So this week we come to the doctrine of solus Christus, or Christ alone. By this we mean that Jesus Christ is the only one who saves. We are saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. So you can see how these doctrines are are woven together. Jesus is the reason God gives us his grace, the work of Christ. And Jesus is the only object of saving faith. He's the one we must trust in to be saved. So with that, you may be wondering, why do we need a message on Christ alone? We're in a church after all, right? Many of us, perhaps most of us, are Christians. Do we really need a sermon on how we can be saved on nothing, uh, by nothing or no one else except for Christ alone? And for those of you who are hoping for a quick no and an early release, uh, the answer is yes, we do. Uh, and plus, you're not ready for the cookout quite yet anyway. Absolutely, we need to hear and receive a message on Christ alone as the one who can save us. And here's why. First, we ought never assume in a gathering like this that everyone knows and believes the gospel. Now, I'm not saying we should go around doubting everyone's faith or salvation. And yet we do know that Jesus said many people will be deceived. They will trust in someone or something other than Christ. Even if they were raised in church in a Christian family, uh, perhaps they assume that they know the truth, and yet they haven't really placed their faith in Christ. And if that's the case, we want to point them directly to Jesus Christ, who alone can save. Second, though, there are certain challenges to this doctrine of Christ alone. There are certain challenges from outside the church, and there are challenges from inside the church. And we need to be on guard 
guarding our lives and our doctrine to make sure we remain faithful to the Word of God and to the Gospel. It's been said that the, the first generation preaches the Gospel, the second generation assumes the Gospel, and the third generation loses the Gospel. That's what happens to an assumed Gospel. So we want to be that first generation that boldly proclaims the gospel of free grace in Jesus Christ and entrust that gospel down to our children and our children's children. Third, it seems to me that even if everyone in this room were a Christian and even if there were no challenges to this doctrine of Christ alone, it would still be absolutely necessary and helpful. If Jesus Christ is, as Martin Luther says, the center and circumference of, our, of the Bible and of our faith, if Christ is the center of our faith, then what is a more glorious subject we could consider than Jesus Christ as the only Savior and mediator between God and man? Now, so that you have some context to this doctrine, consider the words of Pastor Greg Strawbridge. He says, The Reformation called the church back to faith in Christ as the sole mediator between God and man. While the Roman church held that there is a purgatory and that the souls there detained are helped by the intercessions of the faithful and that saints are to be venerated and invoked, that their relics are to be venerated. The Reformers taught that salvation was by Christ's work alone. So John Calvin says, Christ stepped in, took the punishment upon himself, and bore the judgment due to sinners. With his own blood, he expiated the sins which made them enemies of God and thereby satisfied him. We look to Christ alone for divine favor and fatherly love. And while this doctrine wasn't specifically formulated during the Reformation period, it was thoroughly articulated and preached by the Reformers as they waged this spiritual battle against the teachings that there were other mediators, that there were other ways through which we could gain eternal life, through which we could gain God's favor. So this is our main idea for this morning. It's very simple, but of vital importance. Jesus Christ is the only Savior and mediator between God and man. Jesus Christ is the only Savior and mediator between God and man. You don't need to go through any priest or pastor. They cannot give you forgiveness. They cannot mediate in a saving way between you and God. It is through the person and work of Christ alone that people are reconciled with God and brought into His family. Three texts that I want us to consider that lay this out explicitly are John 14.6, Acts chapter 4, verses 8 through 12, and 1 Timothy 2.5. So we'll look at each one of those in turn. This is not like a typical exposition. I will use these uh, passages as uh, the truth which we are proclaiming Jesus Christ as the sole Savior and mediator between God and man. So look first at John... 14.6, and we'll read verses 1 through 7. Let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? 
And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and will take you to myself, that where I am you may be also, and you know the way to where I am going. Thomas said to him, Lord, we do not know where you are going. How can we know the way? Jesus said to him, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. If you had known me, you would have known my Father also. From now on, you do know him and have seen him. Now notice that Jesus is comforting his disciples. He's going away, but they uh, know the way, he says. But as was often the case, the truths that Jesus speaks don't quite penetrate the hard heads of his disciples. How can we know the way if we don't even know where you're going? And so Jesus takes the opportunity to teach them yet again about who he is and about where he's going. I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. So is there any other way to the Father according to Jesus himself? The kingdom of heaven besides going through Jesus? No, Jesus is the only way. Now look at Acts chapter 4, verses 8 through 12. Acts chapter 4, verses 8 through 12. Then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, Rulers of the peoples and the elders, If we are being examined today concerning a good deed done to a crippled man, by what means this man has been healed, let it be known to all of you and to all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ the Nazareth, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, by him this man is standing before you well. This Jesus is the stone that was rejected by you, the builders, which has become the cornerstone. And there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. Here Peter is preaching to the Jewish leaders in Jerusalem. He proclaims that the man who was healed was healed by the power of and in the name of Jesus Christ. So Peter says, Jesus is the foundation of this building God has created, and you, God's very people, have rejected him. And there is salvation found in no one else. You rejected Christ And therefore, you have rejected salvation in his name, for Christ is the only way of salvation. I'll finally look at 1 Timothy 2, verses 1 through 6. 1 Timothy 2, 1 through 6. First of all, then, I urge that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgivings be made for all people, for kings and all who are in high positions, that we may lead a peaceful and quiet life, godly and dignified in every way. This is good and it is pleasing in the sight of God our Savior, who desires all people to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. For there is one God and there is one mediator between God and men, the man, Jesus Christ, who gave himself as a ransom for all, which is the testimony given at the proper time. For this I was appointed a preacher and apostle, I am telling the truth, I am not lying, a teacher of the Gentiles in faith and truth. Now notice that each of these passages center in on Jesus Christ. Specifically, they center in on his identity and his work, on who he is and what he did. 
He is the God-man. As Peter says previous to his sermon that we read, He is the author of life that you killed. He's the God-man who came to fulfill the law of God and the promises of God. And he did so by his perfect life, his sacrificial death on the cross, and his resurrection from the dead. So my aims for this morning are simple. My first aim is that our faith, that your faith, might rest in Jesus Christ. In Christ alone. My second aim is that we might reflect on and rejoice in Christ's work for us. That we might reflect on and rest in Christ's work for us. And my third aim is that our preaching and our evangelism, the words that we speak to others, might point others to Christ and Christ alone as the one who will save sinners. But what would keep us from doing these things? What could possibly draw us away from keeping our eyes focused on Christ our Savior? Well, you might think it's impossible, but there are some challenges. There are some temptations Satan wants to use to draw us away from Christ that we might put our faith in someone or something else other than Christ. Or that we might proclaim a gospel that points people to something or someone other than Christ. Remember, Satan is seeking to destroy you, each one of us. And the way he does this is by drawing us away from Christ. So what are some challenges? What are these temptations by which we might be led astray from this doctrine of Christ alone? One strong challenge comes in the way of fear. And this is our first challenge. The challenge from our culture is this. It says, Jesus Christ is not the only way of salvation. Jesus Christ is not the only way. That's a challenge from outside of the church, which says Christ is not the only way. Terms associated with this might be pluralism or inclusivism or syncretism. Now, this isn't what Martin Luther and John Calvin and the Reformers were fighting against in the church. But it's really a broader application from this doctrine that Christ alone can save. Now, I'm not ashamed to admit that as a child I watched Oprah Winfrey, the Oprah Winfrey show. It was one of the perks of hanging out at my grandmother's house. That and watching General Hospital. Now, I am ashamed of that a little bit. But I loved Oprah Winfrey. She was funny. She was entertaining. She was interesting. She was good at all those things. But you know what? You don't go to her for theology. You don't go to her to learn about the things of God. To learn about the way of salvation. Listen to her words from a show many years ago on spirituality. She says, one of the mistakes that human beings make is believing that there is only one way to live. That we don't accept that there are diverse ways of being in the world. That there are millions of ways to be a human being and many paths to what you call God. And when she received a little pushback, she emphatically said, there couldn't possibly only be one way. It was quite a few years ago, and it was very surprising to many who saw it. But think about, think about our culture today. This mindset has slowly trickled down and infiltrated the minds and hearts of many Americans. And even some who call themselves Christians. 
What Oprah articulates is the seeming unfairness and narrow-mindedness of the Christian claim that Jesus is the only way. After all, as she says, millions of people believe otherwise. Jews, Muslims, Buddhists, atheists. What? Are you saying that all of those people, millions of people, many of whom perhaps have never even heard the name of Jesus, are walking toward a cliff that will mean their eternal doom? Can you hear how exclusive and narrow-minded and intolerant of others that sounds or might sound? See, the new tolerance says... You not only have to show kindness and civility toward those who disagree, you must also accept their point of view as legitimate. You must not only accept their right to disagree, you must also accept their view as valid. But think about what it means to be a Christian. What is called exclusive is simply what it means to be a Christian, at least in terms of our theology. Now, I don't mean that we should estrange others or exclude others from visiting our church or being in our homes. I don't mean we should try and force others to agree with us. We should be welcoming and hospitable. We should be patient and with civility engage in the marketplace of ideas. What I mean is this. To be a Christian is to believe and say that the Lord Jesus Christ is the only way to the Father. The only way to heaven, the only way to have forgiveness of sins. And to believe otherwise is to reject Jesus himself and his own claims. If Jesus is who he says he is, if he did what the scriptures say he did, then we must either believe him or not. He is either Christ all by himself, or he is not the Christ at all. So then, what's the application here for us? We all believe this. This is nothing new to us, right? Well, I think one application is that we must embrace this charge of exclusivity as a badge of honor. We must embrace this. Yes, when it comes to salvation, when it comes to salvation in the eternal kingdom of God, we must wear this as a badge of honor. So imagine... You're sitting with a group of people who are not Christians. Maybe they're atheists, maybe they're of another religion, maybe they claim to be Christians and they think that there are other ways to God. And the conversation turns to spiritual things. And you feel the temperature start to rise because you know you hold some views that are unpopular with your with your friends, with your coworkers, with your family members. And They start discussing how we need to be more inclusive and tolerant and how we need to accept the views of others and how we need to accept all ideas and religions as valid. And then one turns to you and says, what do you think? What do you think? Do you believe Jesus is the only way to heaven? And that millions of people... Millions of people who don't know and love him are going to hell? Sounds so mean and intolerant and narrow-minded. Are you saying that's what you believe? So let me ask you, in that situation, do you squirm a little bit? Do you squirm when the question comes to you? Are you hesitant or do you sidestep the question? 
Some, when they encounter that question, answer something like, well, Jesus is my Savior, but I can't judge anyone else in what they believe. But really, that's kind of squishy, isn't it? It's not truthful either. And really, think about what that leads to in our evangelism. It leads to a weak and cowardly evangelism. How do you evangelize if you think there might be other ways to salvation? How do you tell someone with urgency, you must receive Jesus Christ, you must place your faith in Jesus Christ alone to be saved? How can you do that if you think there are other ways to the Father in heaven? I've made up my mind that, just in general, I wouldn't make a very good salesman. To be a good salesman, what do you have to do? You have to be able to convince other people that your product is the absolute best. Or even that they, not just that it's the best and that they really want it, they need to have your product. I don't think I would be very good at that. It helps a lot, actually, if you think your product is the best, right? If you actually believe that they need it. But when it comes to Christ, how much more zealous... How much more confident should we be since Jesus is not simply the best way to the Father, but that He is the only way to the Father in heaven? He's the only way. He's not simply the best way or the way for me, but the only way sinners will be saved. Don't you realize, unless your friends and neighbors and co-workers hear and receive the gospel, they will not be saved. There is an urgency to this message. There is an urgency to the exclusivity of Christ as the only Savior and mediator between God and man. Rather than seeing this challenge as a temptation to shy away from the truth or to dodge, we can see it as an opportunity to share the gospel. When you're in that situation and you're called upon to give an answer for what you believe, what better opportunity to boldly proclaim that there is no other name in heaven or on earth by which we must be saved. So be ready. Be ready. Always be ready to give an account. Your chance may come soon. But there are other challenges, and some of them are much subtler than the one we just looked at. Some come from within the church. For instance, there is a challenge of moralism or the idea that Jesus simply teaches us the way to salvation. This is our second challenge, that Jesus simply teaches us the way to heaven. Here's what the challenge may sound like. Jesus shows us what true love looks like. This is the way of the kingdom. Jesus came to the earth and humbled himself to show us how to live. And as a supreme example of love, he laid down his life for his friends. And this is how we ought to live in order to make our way to God. Lives of peace and humility. Lives of sacrifice and love. Now, what's subtle about this is that it sounds right, doesn't it? It sounds right because in a sense it is right. Jesus does show us the way. It's the truth, but it's not the whole truth. And sometimes telling a partial truth is a complete lie. 
It's true that Jesus does teach us the way. His life is a model of how we should have lived. He lived in complete obedience to the Father, and we should too. And Jesus' death on the cross is the supreme example of love. But if we stop there and say nothing more, then we aren't telling the whole truth. We're actually telling a lie. For the reason Jesus' death on the cross is a supreme example of love, it's the supreme act of love, is because he died for unworthy sinners. As a sacrifice, as a substitute, as one who turned the wrath of God away from sinners, even though they fully deserved it. Now it's surprising to me, but there are many who grew up in church who think that what it takes to get to heaven is to be a good person. And we're all basically good people, they reason, except for really bad people like murderers and robbers. So we all, well almost all, get to go to heaven when we die. If you've attended many funerals, you, you've probably recognized that a common view is not justification by faith, but justification by death. All you have to do is simply die, and then you make your way to heaven. Well, I'm reminded of the rich young man who ran up to Jesus and fell down at his feet and said, Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus recited a few commandments. And the man, really like any good American, said, All these I have done since I was a boy. I have kept those commandments. So Jesus drops the hammer down on him to show him he is not as good as he thinks he is. You still lack one thing, Jesus says. Go and sell all of your possessions and give it to the poor. Then come and follow me. I can imagine the young man's eyes dropping his head turning away as the truth of Jesus' words seep into his mind. And the scripture says he went away full of sorrow because he couldn't bring himself to do what Jesus had said. He wasn't good at all. He was a sinner in need of grace. And you are too. You are in desperate need of God's grace. See, the problem with the cultural idea that you have to be good to get to heaven is this. The Bible actually teaches what it takes to get to heaven is not simply getting a passing grade or even a good grade, but acing the test. To live every day for the glory of God, keeping every one of God's commands in perfect obedience and faith. And of course, now you see the other problem. We are not perfect. None of us, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Therefore, by this standard, none of us will go to heaven when we die. If you're drowning in the ocean, it's not going to help for someone to show you how to swim. You need someone to rescue you. If you see a man that's starving to death, you don't give him example of how, an example of how to eat. You give him some food. And it won't do any good whatsoever to give a dead man instructions on how to breathe, even to give him practical examples of how to do so. Here's where moralism fails us. If we are going to be saved, we need more than an excellent example. We need someone to save us. We need forgiveness. 
We need more than someone to simply show us the way, to show us how to get out of this mess we've made. We need someone to rescue us from hell, to save us from our sins and the wrath of God. And this gets to the matter of the atonement, why Jesus died and what Jesus did in his life and death. So in his book, Whatever Happened to the Gospel of Grace, James Boyce explains the cross work of Jesus in terms of sacrifice, satisfaction, and substitution. Sacrifice, satisfaction, and substitution. When Jesus died on the cross, he offered himself up as a once and for all sacrifice for sin. He is the true Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. When Jesus died on the cross, he offered himself up to satisfy the wrath of God. He was a propitiation, absorbing the wrath of God that was due to sinners. And when Jesus died on the cross, he was a substitute for sinners. He took my place. He bore my punishment and offers me his perfect righteousness if I will come to him in repentance and faith. And then and only then will I begin to be able to follow his example by loving God and loving others. So here, our application is that we must make sure that our faith rests not ultimately on what we do, but on what Jesus has done for us. Not on how we're living, but on how Jesus lived for us and died for us. Our faith for justification before God must be placed squarely on Christ alone. So what about you? Do you ever drift into thinking God accepts you because of your own righteousness? Now, you wouldn't do it intentionally. It may not even be a conscious effort on your part. But consider this. When someone asks you, how are you doing spiritually? Where does your mind immediately turn to? If you're like me, often your mind turns to your own spiritual disciplines. Or to your own fight against sin. How are you doing spiritually? Well, I've been reading my Bible this week. I've been praying pretty diligently. I've been fighting against these sins. So I'm doing pretty good. Our hearts turn. Our minds turn toward our own spiritual performance. Now, we need to think about those things. There's no doubt about that. But we need to make sure they're flowing out of a heart of gratitude for what Christ has done for us. See, there's a deeper foundation to how we're doing spiritually than our own spiritual disciplines. What if we began dwelling more on the all-surpassing sufficiency of Christ for us? How often do you do that? How often do you dwell upon the person and the work of Christ for you? How often do you recite in your mind the gospel of our Savior Jesus? Is it just a weekly thing that you do here on Sunday mornings? To become revived and remember the grace of God? We ought to recite it daily. We ought to bring these things to mind on a regular basis that we might remember our salvation, everything that we have, our grace is found only in Christ and in nothing else. Now, we don't believe in what is commonly called a name it and claim it theology. 
Some say that we should say positive words, believe them, and they will come true. Like proclaiming, I will be prosperous and healthy in Jesus' name. And then expecting it to come true. Like some sort of magical words. It's not biblical. But think about this. When it comes to the person and work of Jesus Christ, we ought to be name it and claim it Christians. The scripture says, There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Name that promise and claim it. When the scripture says, Nothing can separate you from the love of God in Christ Jesus, you name it and claim it. You trust in these words. You trust in this promise. When the scripture says, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. You rejoice in it. And when the scripture says, But now in Christ Jesus, you once who were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. You name that promise and claim it. For all the promises of God are yours in Christ Jesus and in Christ alone. Look at one more passage with me and we'll close with considering this Ephesians chapter 1 verses 3 to 14 Ephesians chapter 1 3 to 14 from this passage I want you to pay careful attention to what flows from Christ what is found in Christ what comes through Christ Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love he predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace, with which he has blessed us in the Beloved, In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. In him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will, so that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory. In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. Think about all those things that were mentioned. Rejoice in them. In Christ we have been blessed by God. In Christ we have every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. In Christ we have been chosen by God before the foundation of the world. In Christ you are holy and blameless in His sight. Through Christ we have been adopted as sons according to His good pleasure and will. In Christ we have been freely received We have freely received the glorious grace of God. In Christ, we have redemption through His blood. In Christ, we have the forgiveness of sins. In Christ, we have been sealed by the promised Holy Spirit. In Christ, we have a guaranteed inheritance. Under Christ, all things in heaven 
and on earth will be brought together all to the praise of his glory. For our closing time, let's spend a few moments reflecting upon Christ and his work for us. Spend a few moments in quiet reflection.